for me at least, it is always one of the most somber and sobering times of any funeral. I'm speaking of the burial. And for those of you who that have, have attended a, a burial in our culture, I suspect perhaps all of us have. Maybe you have felt those incredibly deep and heavy feelings, even if you were not even particularly connected to the deceased. There is something so sobering about following a, a hearse out to a final resting place in a graveyard surrounded by tombstones and the casket being brought there and placed on the brink of going down into the ground. And if you've been to one of our funerals or a service that I've led, we have had some readings and some scripture verses to present as the family and loved ones gather around um, this final resting place. And then there's a particular um, sobering moment for me when I take uh, dust or dirt, and I pour it over the casket, and I say, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. And all of us feel in that moment that that's my final resting place too, that, that someday I will be returning to dust, that I will be going to ashes. It is the natural process of life and then death in a world that is cursed by sin and broken in all the ways that we see it. And again, if you're like me, you leave that gravesite with just this feeling of heaviness, that this something sober and something separating has happened. It's there, I think, that we most begin to feel that this is at least temporarily final in the sense of affection and intimacy and personal connection that one has with the dead. And I start here because in every culture that has been known to man, there is this kind of reaction to death. There is something by which we human beings need finality, need separation from the person whom we now realize and recognize is separated from us. And again, in every culture, you will find these processes, these sober and touching and tender ways to say goodbye. And perhaps it's for this reason that when we think of the fact that Jesus was buried, it may be something that, frankly, we've never focused on that much. Of course he was buried. Yeah, I've seen those drawings. There's that little cave, right? There's a hole and there's this little stone, perfectly stone rock, and it is rolled back and forth. I've seen that picture. I know he was buried. And yet, did you, did you recognize the words of that wonderful old spiritual we just sang? Were you there when they laid him in the tomb? No, of course you weren't there. None of us were there. In fact, only a couple people were there. But what is that old spiritual trying to communicate? Sometimes it causes me to tremble. Were you there when they laid him in the tomb? And what I want to do this morning is I want to look through these several verses 
and help us to bring to mind the same kind of sobriety, the same kind of seriousness that would have confronted the people who were there when he was laid in a tomb. To help us to understand why these verses are not just mere throwaway or extra pieces of information. Oh yeah, sure, he was buried. Okay, let's get to the good stuff. Let's get to the resurrection. We know what's coming. Yeah, today's Friday, but then Sunday's coming. Can we talk about that? No. Resist that urge. Resist that temptation. Why? Because the Bible makes really clear that the burial of Jesus the Messiah was a really big deal. You say, why do you say that? Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul is telling his, his, his uh, readers in 1 Corinthians at the church in Corinth, and he's telling us what the gospel is. What is the good news that we believe? And do you know what he said? That good news was, listen, he said, for I delivered unto you first of all that which else I also received. He's telling, I'm telling you the gospel that I got, okay? I didn't come up with this. How that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Okay, this morning if you came here, does that surprise you that that's part of the gospel, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture? Yes or no? No, I think we pretty well accept that. That's part of the gospel. And notice then what he says at the end of verse 4, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Is anyone here surprised that part of the gospel, the good news that we believe, is that Jesus rose from the dead? No. But look what comes between it. He died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried before you came here this morning, if someone asked you, can you tell me what the gospel is? How many of you would have said, I'll tell you what the gospel is. It was that Jesus died for our sins. Oh yeah, don't forget. And that he was buried. Don't forget that. That's part of the gospel. He was buried. Huh. Why is it so important that Jesus was buried? Why is it such a big deal that as, the, that the, as we sang this morning, they laid him in a tomb? This morning, I'd like to look at the subject, the relevance of Jesus' burial. The relevance of Jesus' burial. And I hope that if you've never really dug into that question for yourself, that this morning, perhaps for the first time, you'll begin to grapple with the importance of why Jesus was buried and what it might mean for your faith. So I encourage you to take out your Bibles, if you have them, whether in hard copy or in a phone or tablet or other version, and look with me at Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 42. And we'll just work through our text through verse 47, and then try to understand why does it matter that Jesus was buried. Now, where are we in the Gospel of Mark? Last week we talked about the death of Jesus, how the Son of God died. And again, the, the mystery that the immortal one, the one who created the world, should die. But we also saw last week that through this entire death, God was painting a picture of his Son as confirming who he was, the Messiah the Son of God, the true King.
king of Israel. And we've just seen that, that the centurion, this hardened Roman soldier who has seen so many deaths, sees the death of Jesus happen right in front of him and says, truly, this man was the son of God. Something was different about this death than everyone that I've seen. And verse 40 and verse 41 tell us that there were witnesses to that death. There were the women who were looking on afar off. There was Mary Magdalene, and there was Mary, the mother of James, the last and of Joses, and Salome, who also, when he was in Galilee, followed him and ministered unto him, and many other women which came up with him unto Jerusalem. Now, it's notable, isn't it? We have seen the men here turning tail and running for their lives. We've seen Peter denying Jesus. We've seen not one person who at his arrest stayed with him. And now Mark wants us to learn that there were some exceptions to that rule. They were, the, they were the women. And I think there's just something wonderful and touching about this, that these natural affection that, that these women had for Jesus as, as his disciples had a kind of loyalty and a kind of bond that allowed them to stay and remain and, and even witness the death of Jesus. I also think it's very touching that in verse 41, it says to him that these women followed him and ministered unto him or served him. These were women who had devoted their lives to following him as disciples and, and presenting their gifts to him by truly serving and meeting his needs. And what a wonderful thing is that here they're, they're named. And it's as if God is saying, do you serve me and love my son, even in small ways, even in just practical ways? You're not forgotten. God says, I know. I remember. I just love the testimonial here to these faithful women, and it should be an encouragement to those of you who are serving and loving Jesus in your own private ways and in very practical ways to the people around you. He sees, he knows, and it will not be forgotten. But notice now we come to verse 42. And it says, And now when the even, or the evening, was come, because it was the preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath. Now the traditional Christian calendar is that Jesus was crucified on Friday, on a good Friday, and this was the day before the Sabbath. The Sabbath was measured, as you may recall, from sundown to sundown. So Friday evening when it got dark, the Sabbath day started. And the Sabbath day ended on Saturday evening when it got dark. And so Mark is telling us here that presumably before it got dark, before the Sabbath day had started, that Jesus was taken down from the cross. He was buried. He was placed in a tomb. And it is the day before the Sabbath, and we see, first of all, what I'm going to call here the request. Notice verse 43. Joseph of Arimathea, an honorable counselor, which also waited for the kingdom of God, came and went in boldly unto Pilate and craved or desired the body of Jesus. Notice, first of all, here the man that appears... Totally out of the blue. We've never seen this guy before. We've never been introduced to him before in Mark's gospel. He just appears out of the shadows and suddenly the spotlight is on him. 
Now, haven't we seen this all throughout Mark before? Suddenly Mark just throws in a name, and there's a guy in the middle of the stage, and we're saying, uh, who's this guy? We saw it two weeks ago with Simon, the Cyrenian, the guy who was compelled in to carry Jesus' cross, and we say, where did this guy come from? Well, suddenly here's another guy. He just shows up. Who is he? Well, who is he? Notice what it says, that he is an honorable counselor. Now, just be, be sure to note that. That's not one of the guys that you went to in high school and they talked to you about your college, your college possibilities, okay? Not that kind of counselor. Not a marriage counselor. Not a family counselor. You're barking up the wrong tree if you're thinking there. What does it mean that he was a counselor? Here's what it means. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. Now, let that sink into you for a minute. We've been hearing about that Sanhedrin, haven't we? What have we learned about that Sanhedrin? We've learned that as a general rule, they hated Jesus. We've learned that, that they were the ones who had his religious trial and convinced a bunch of people to commit perjury so that they could have a false charge against Jesus. These were the wealthy, elite, connected people of Jesus' day. These were the high priests. These were the scribes. These were the influential political movers and shakers among the people of Israel. They were the Jewish Supreme Court. About 70 people on this Supreme Court body. And Joseph of Arimathea was one of them. He was one of their influential people. Matthew describes him as just simply a rich man. He was wealthy. He was connected. He was important. Notably, notice what else it says with him. He was honorable. And it also says that he waited for the kingdom of God. He was eagerly anticipating. He was looking forward to the kingdom of God. Now, do you remember what Jesus loved to preach about? The kingdom of God. And who was the king? He was. And so what this is signifying is that this man was looking expectantly to the coming of the Messiah. And do you know what else? He believed it was Jesus. Do you know Joseph of Arimathea believed that Jesus was the Messiah? It actually describes, the Bible describes him in Luke 23 as um, uh, uh, a disciple. Actually, I think that may have been in, in the book of John. But he is described in the Gospels as a disciple of Jesus. But guess what kind of disciple? A secret disciple. One who wouldn't want to be public about it and open about it. Now again, if you're in the Sanhedrin, can you at least understand that from a human perspective? Hey, have you heard about that Jesus guy? What a fraud! We got to find a way to kill him. And Joseph of Arimathea is just mouth shut. Not saying, well, I, I actually believe him. Now, what do, we, what do we take from that? That here is this guy that the Bible describes as, as righteous, a righteous man. He was a good, upstanding, honorable man, a rich man in the place of the most elevated position among the Jewish people and a secret disciple. Well, it says that he was governed by fear. How many of us could associate with that when it comes to publicly identifying with Christ in certain places? But to me, it says something else, too. I wonder how often we fail 
to remember that Jesus has his people in the most unexpected places? How oftentimes are we tempted by our other viewpoints to say, well, that political party that I don't like, Jesus couldn't have any people there. You're saying among the Democrats, among those Republicans, you mean he could have someone in, in Congress? You mean he could have someone on the Supreme Court? Well, I don't see them standing up for his name. Be, don't be too hasty in your judgments, friends. Don't be too harsh. Jesus has disciples in places who just haven't come out publicly yet. And we should recognize, you know, frankly, given our natural bent to fear and cowardice, we should recognize and give grace to other people in their battles, in their own places. Here was a man, he was a disciple, he was a secret one. And yet, he was Jesus's. He believed. He was a disciple. I love this. I love that God has people in surprising places. And we should have that measure of grace to influential people who maybe are in surprising places. But notice also this moment that he was confronted with. Notice what he did. He sees that Jesus has died, and he came, it says, and went in boldly unto Pilate and craved or requested the body of Jesus. Now, what an interesting move. Why do you think Joseph of Arimathea did that? Do you think it was guilt? I suppose it might have been some guilt for me. I should have come out publicly before. Now he's dead. I got to do something. Was it love? I can't believe they treated him like that. I need to go and do, I need to give honor to this man who taught me so much. Was it a righteous anger? I don't care anymore. This was wrong. I'm standing for what's right. I'm making my stand. Whatever it was, do you know what it says he did? He boldly went in. And the idea is he took courage. He screwed up his courage. He said, Joseph, let's go. It's time. It's time for me to step out of the shadows. And you know, friends, maybe there was a time in your life like that where you were a secret follower of Jesus for a while and, and people didn't know about it and you were a little bit nervous and there came to a point in life where there was no turning back and you said, you know what, it's time. It's time that everyone knows I'm following Jesus. And at that point, this man took courage. Let's just think about that word courage for just a moment. C.S. Lewis had a wonderful statement. He said, courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point. You think about that for just a moment. Courage is not just one of the virtues, like you have courage, you have patience, you have love. You have... No, courage is the point at which every one of your virtues is tested. Now, what's he saying by that? He's saying that at every point, being virtuous will sometimes be hard, not easy. You know, it's easy to be patient when everything's going well. It's easy to be patient when you've got plenty of money in your bank account and there's no stresses of relationships or other things. But it gets hard to be patient when everything starts going wrong. When that guy cuts you off on the way to work when you're already late. And it's at that point that courage, it's at that point that courage kicks in. Will you continue with your virtue of patience when the going got really tough? That's courage. Will you have the courage to be faithful to those that you love when you're tempted and it becomes hard? 
Will you have the courage to exercise sacrificial love when you don't see how much you have left in the tank for yourself? Will you have the courage to speak in the face of danger when the name of Jesus Christ requires it? Don't just think, friends, that courage is one virtue. Think of it as the opportunity to stand in all of, the, of your virtues at the testing point. I love that when it came to this opportunity, Joseph of Arimathea took courage and stood out, stepped out of the shadows. Now notice what Joseph of Arimathea did. We see in verse 45 that Pilate gives the body to Jesus. And he allows him, he allows him to take the body of Jesus hanging on that cross. And verse 46 says, and he, that's Joseph of Arimathea, bought fine linen. Remember, he was a rich man. He bought a burial cloth for him to cover his shame. And he took him down and he wrapped him in the linen and laid him in a sepulcher, a tomb, which was hewn or carved out of a rock. It was, it was like a cave but a man-made cave. It was actually cut out with human hands. And he rolled a stone under the door of the sepulcher. A Jewish tomb, especially a rich man's tomb, would be this, again, this man-made cave in which you might have shelves on the wall against which, in which a body would be laid. And multiple people could be buried there. The Jewish bodies were not embalmed, so they would very naturally and quickly decay. And you'd place a body in there. And then what they would do is they would go and once the body decayed, they would take the bones and they would place them in an ossuary, in a container. And then they would have, someone else could be buried. Multiple people could be buried. That was your family burying spot. And you would have a large stone that would be rolled against the opening to the cave. And in some ways, actually, I've heard that it would be a really significantly heavy stone and sealing up that entry so that thieves would not come in and take out valuable items like this linen clothing that Jesus was now wearing. You'd have grave robbers. Or you'd have animals that would want to come in and feed. And so you'd have a stone that would be sealing the entry. Now, I, I, this is where Joseph of Arimathea takes Jesus. It is no doubt to his personal tomb. He is treating him like family. You are my family. I am placing you in my own tomb. Now, I want you to just reflect on this for a minute. This hit with me as I was looking at this passage. Look at verse 46. And he bought fine linen and took him down. Friend, have you ever thought of Joseph of Arimathea, this very wealthy man, personally walking to the cross and taking the stakes out of Jesus' wrist, his feet, tenderly taking down a fully adult, dead weight body? No concern about the blood and the gore. This battered, lifeless form who had been so maliciously abused and treated, he takes him down himself. Were you there when they laid him in the tomb? Sometimes it causes me to tremble. Were you there when Joseph laid him in the tomb? And think about this. This was a public 
way, a public highway. Here's a man of reputation, of influence, of power. And they're hanging on a cross as to the world, a criminal, a condemned criminal. And here is this influential, powerful man doing the humbling job of taking him off the cross in public view. What did the scribes think? What did his, what did his friends at the Sanhedrin think about him taking this man and placing him in his own family tomb and saying, he's with me. I've got him. Wow. What a request. What courage. What love from Joseph of Arimathea. But notice, secondly, I want us to look at the record that is given of this burial. Will you notice it with me? This is really in verse, begins in verse 44. Joseph has come to Pilate, and he's gone and requested the body of Jesus. Now, this would have been a strange request. Because to the Romans, they would often leave a, cru- a criminal hanging on that for potentially days. They, w- they wanted people to see this criminal hanging up there, dead and getting mangled and consumed. Because that was their way of saying, don't be like him. You want to have that fate? Go ahead, try us. And so here is a rich man going to Pilate and saying, hey, I want the body of the criminal. In fact, from my understanding, the Romans sometimes would take these criminals off a cross and just toss them into a common grave. There you go. There's no one here to come and identify with this criminal. It's a remarkable thing. And look at what Pilate says, verse 44. And Pilate marveled if he were already dead. You're telling me he already died? Why? Because people who died on the cross would often go much longer, as we talked about last week. This was a very quick death. And calling unto him the centurion, remember the centurion who said this was the son of God? He asked him whether he had been any while dead. He's saying, he calls the centurion, the guy who was watching, and says, hey, is he actually dead? And what does the centurion say? Well, when he knew it of the centurion, that he was actually dead, he gave the body to, Jesus, to, to Joseph. Notice Pilate's surprise. He's surprised that Jesus had died so fast. Notice the centurion's confirmation. A guy who had seen hundreds, if not thousands, of these kinds of executions. Yeah, he's dead. And then notice what Mark wants to make clear about the witnesses. Will you see verse 47? And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joses, beheld where he was laid. What's Mark doing here? Why is Mark recording for us Pilate's surprise? He's already dead. Why is he recording for us the centurion's confirmation? Yeah, Pilate, he's dead. Why is he recording for us that the women knew where he was buried? They saw him where he was laid. You see, we need to move finally to what I'm going to call the relevance. Not just the request that Joseph made, not just the record that is provided of his burial, but the relevance. Let's try to understand why this matters. First of all, we need to understand the prophecy. We need to understand the prophecy, and this is just so phenomenal. If you have your Bibles and you can hold your finger in Mark 15, I'm going to invite you to turn back to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. That's just about in the middle of your Bibles. It's in our Old Testament. 
And it's right before the book of Jeremiah. If you're there and if you're at Psalms or Proverbs, you just keep on flipping a couple more books until you get to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 53. And we've talked about the fact that this passage is a passage about Jesus. You say, how could it be about Jesus? It was, it was written about 700 years before him. Yeah, and it was about Jesus. For example, it says how he, in verse 4, hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows like Jesus did on that cross. Verse 5 says that he was wounded for our transgressions, for our sins, just like Jesus was punished on that cross for the wrongdoing that you've done and that I've done. It says that he was bruised for our iniquities. Jesus was battered and bloodied and bruised for our wrongdoing. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. It was prophesied hundreds of years ago before that all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. He became the bearer of our sins so that we could be righteous before God. But then notice verse 9, will you? After prophesying that this Messiah, this suffering servant, would die, Isaiah says this, And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Have you ever thought about that before? That Jesus made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death? You say, well, what does that mean? Well, think about how both of those things were accomplished in a way that the Israelites of, of that day could, just would have blown their minds. Here was the suffering servant of God prophesied in the Old Testament. What does it mean that he made his grave with the wicked? He was assigned to die with wicked men. And did he? Between two thieves, one on the left hand and one on the right he made his grave with the wicked. He died in a criminal's place. You say, okay, well, what, the, what would that have meant? Well, what would it typically have meant for a Roman criminal? Toss him in a common grave. Who cares? Let him rot in the sun and be con consumed by wild animals. That's the place of a criminal. That's where a criminal is buried. What about Jesus? No, no, just like it had been prophesied hundreds of years before, he was buried with the rich in his death. Here is Joseph of Arimathea, a man coming out of the shadows, a rich man, perfectly fulfilling the prophecy from hundreds of years previously and places him in his own tomb, the tomb of a wealthy man. Two things that would have seemed almost impossible. How could he have his grave with the wicked? And how could he also be with the rich in his death? Mark 15 says, you want to see how? He died like a criminal. And he was buried like the wealthy. Wow. Do you see what's actually happening here, friends? Don't miss this. What's happening in Mark chapter 15? God's burying his son. You see that? God is burying his son. Joseph of Arimathea is not the main player here. Pilate's not the main player here. The centurion's not the main player here. Who is? God. And just like he had prophesied hundreds of years previously, he is ensuring that his son is going to be buried in exactly the way that has been prepared. But not only the prophecy we need to see here, but secondly, the preparation 
Why is it so important that Pilate confirmed that Jesus was dead? Why is it so important that the centurion confirmed that Jesus was dead? Why is it that these women who followed him and knew him and served him, they saw him die and they saw him be buried? Why? Because, friends, across the last 2,000 years of Christian history, you will hear, even to today, Jesus didn't actually die. Jesus swooned. He fainted on that cross. That is how we can explain his resurrection. That is how we can explain that people were willing to die for the fact that they say, oh, I saw Jesus with my own eyes after he rose from the dead. They were willing to die for it. Would you be willing to die for something you, if you knew it was a lie? If you knew you made it up? Would you say, I'll die for that? I don't know a person who would. And those men who were willing to die on the basis of their claim that I saw Jesus raised from the dead, I saw him alive with my own eyes, the world knows that's powerful evidence of the resurrection of Christ. And so you'll hear he didn't actually die. Friend, do you think the centurion knew whether Jesus was dead or not? Do you think the women knew whether Jesus had actually died on that cross or whether he just swooned? I think so. And God wanted to make sure we knew of that. It's not only that. You'll hear today from sincere Muslim people. You'll hear them say, oh, Jesus actually didn't die on that cross. Actually, God made a little swap. I, I, I kid you not about this. The general Muslim view is that God, God, God raised Jesus up to heaven before the cross, and someone else stepped into his place and died on the cross. And Christians just got fooled. It was, maybe, it was maybe Simon of Cyrene, or maybe it was Judas himself. Jesus did that. He, he went up straight up to heaven. Now, let's be, let's be honest. Do you think those women who had followed Jesus and ministered personally to his needs when they were watching the crucifixion would have been able to spot if it was Judas on the cross? You think? I think God wanted us to know. No, no. No, no. What I'm telling you is the truth. Jesus died. He died. He was buried. Why? So that we can have faith next week that he rose again from the dead. He is alive today. But you know, there's one more thing, I think, that we should focus on when it comes to the relevance of Jesus' burial. Not just the prophecy God was burying his son in, in keeping with everything he had predicted. Not only was it this this preparation for resurrection, that God was putting a mark of credibility on this gospel account. But finally, there's a personal example that we all should listen to. Can we just reflect on Joseph of Arimathea for one moment? The man who stepped out of the shadows to publicly identify with Jesus Christ after his death. I wonder, as Joseph was there, taking Jesus down from the cross, laying him in a tomb, reflecting on everything that had happened. Do you think Joseph had any regret? Do you think Joseph would have stopped and thought, you know what, I missed a lot. I missed out on a lot by not following him earlier, by, by, by not publicly professing him. Oh man, I, I would have loved to sit and hear more sermons from this man. I would have loved to be able to cast in my lot with him and support him and serve him before this moment. Why didn't I come out sooner? 
don't miss that while this is a wonderful story, Joseph did miss out. He did miss out. And, and I want to say this morning, friend, if, if Joseph's story is resonating with you today, because you know that when it comes to identifying with Jesus, you're still in the shadows, today's the day to step out and identify with him. Today's the day to step out and confess that you follow Jesus and you don't care who knows. Today is the day that you can step out into the spotlight and say, you know what? I'm a disciple of Jesus and I don't care who knows. You see, it was Jesus himself who said, whosoever shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. It is Jesus that said, but whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. Romans 10 says that if you, thou shalt believe, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. And this is something that all of us are challenged on. I suspect this morning, wherever you are, are you going to step out of the shadows and identify with Jesus no matter the cost? And let me make that practical for perhaps some of you this morning, and I'm not speaking to anyone in particular, I can assure you. Immediately after Jesus' resurrection, after the coming down of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, Peter preached his first sermon at Pentecost. And the people that were there, those Jews in Jerusalem, were so convicted by what he said. They felt such great spiritual guilt. They said, what should we do? Tell us what we should do. And do you know what Peter said? Repent and be baptized, every one of you. Every one of you. In the name of Jesus for the remission of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And do you know what those people did that day? Acts chapter 2 records that these ones, these more than 3,000 people stepped forward to repent and be baptized. To identify with Jesus Christ. Friends, do you know what the very first step of identifying with Jesus Christ is? If you're a disciple of his, it's to follow him by being baptized. In being baptized upon the confession of your faith. And friend, I know perhaps that some of you grew up in environments in which you were baptized before the profession of your faith when you were an infant when you were a young child, before you truly understood what it meant to follow Christ. In this church, we are of a baptistic conviction. We believe that the Bible teaches that baptism is for those who are making a public profession of what has already happened internally. That is to say, they already believe. And now they are publicly professing what they believe by stepping out of the shadows and publicly identifying with Jesus Christ. And this morning, friend, if, if you would say, I'm a disciple of Jesus, I believe in him, but you've never come out of the shadows. You've never stepped out and been baptized publicly on the confession of your faith to identify with Jesus. I'd sure love to speak with you. And we could do a baptism as soon as you're ready. Friends, if you're being a Joseph of Arimathea this morning, if you're a disciple in the shadows, you're missing out. And let's remember that the relevance of the burial of Jesus Christ was that it was a wonderful example for this dear man, this righteous man, 
this sincere man to take courage to step out of the shadows and to identify publicly with Jesus Christ. Let's pray.